Hoper, I know it's important to talk about the gold medal that didn't happen for Canada this past week. And I know, in fact, our guest on this week's podcast, former coach with the national junior team. So there's a little bit of a teaser. So there's a lot to talk about, but there's something that's on my mind. I need to get it off my mind, off my chest. And I know that I, you're just the guy to bounce this off of, okay? That is so unlike you, Mike. I know. It's, it's rare that I carry something with me yeah. that I need to, to vent about. I never would have thought that from Mike Farwell to have something on his mind. For those of our listeners who aren't aware, when Mike and I are on the road, Mike from time to time will say to me, Popper, I've been thinking. And at that point, I know it's time for me to close my book or stop the podcast because we're about to go on some tangent that has been festering in the mind of Farwell and it's not going to be pretty. So what do you got for me today, buddy? I have for you. Here's what I've been thinking, Popper. Former Sault Ste. Marie Greyhound, Joe Thornton. Probably the nicest guy I've never met. I have mm-hmm. heard nothing but good things about him. In fact, it just occurs to me that our guest on this week's podcast may have a thing or two to say about Jumbo Joe. Joe Thornton, and this, I'll remind you, this is coming from a Leafs fan. It needs to stop, and it needs to stop right now. You know how when you're really excited at Christmas time, and you get a new toy, and you rip, you know, you open that present, and you're like so excited, oh my God, I love this toy. And you play with that toy so much, you break it on the first day. The Toronto media needs to let go of their new toy, Joe Thornton. It doesn't matter how he answers every question. It doesn't matter how he ties his skates or what he ate for lunch. It need, it, it's already too much. I'm seeing too much. Training camps just started. Let, let Joe play where Joe is put by the coaching staff and stop it. He just got here. Don't break him. That's all. Why don't you like things that are fun? I think Joe is great. Again, probably the nicest guy I've never met. But and and I you're right. Who doesn't like the way he approaches the game? Everything that you've read and heard about him? I just think that there are a bunch of other stories and a bunch of other players on the team that the media could focus on. I don't need – it's too much. It's too much Joe. But see, you used to work in Toronto media. Yes. You used to be on the morning show at The Fan. This is So true. you understand that there is never too much of anything around the Toronto Maple Leafs. You need to know everything about every player and every shift matters. And after every shift, there's a whole dive in as to whether that line should be together. And how did this person play this shift? And how, what about the second period from this guy? Well, this guy changed up his tape job, so he must be struggling mentally. There's so many things that dive into the Leafs. There's always criticism and always debate about this team. And that is just the Toronto media. That is why people have not went to Toronto in years past. I get it. It's a lot. It is a lot to digest, but there are always, whenever the fan brings up the Leafs, those phones start going off, ratings start going up. There is no such thing as too much Toronto Maple Leafs. For better or for wrong, more times than not, probably for wrong. I don't mind it with Jumbo because Jumbo's been out in San Jose for the last decade or so. I don't know how long, but I'm guessing a decade at least, um, where there isn't a lot of media attention. There's not a lot known about Joe Thornton besides what other players talk about. So now that the Toronto fans are starting to get a local kid back home who's coming to Toronto, even if he is, sorry, Joe, but a fraction of what he was at 25, he is still Joe Thornton, and he is still wearing a Toronto Maple Leafs. And at the start of the signing, would you ever expect him to be on the top line? No, and that's why it's a story, I think. And that, that part of it, that's fine. But do I, I one, the one that put me off and I, I, I forget who tweeted it and I wouldn't throw them under the bus anyway, but it was, it, it was the response Joe gave to the question, were you surprised that you were put on the top line in the, in practice? Nope. I don't care. That, that's what he's like. What, how is that? How is that newsworthy? How? He's like, I'm a first ballot hall of famer. I'm not surprised by anything. My favorite was my favorite line so far is when he said, I really have no stress, man. None. And <laughs> I saw Ryan Whitney quote tweeted it and said, uh, like, you know, over a thousand games played, over a thousand points, uh, gold medal at the Olympics. Um, 
dismay or MVP. I think he won one year or something. He listed off a bunch of accolades and then wrote, Oh really jumbo. And then showed the uh, salary cap page of where he's, his career earnings are over a hundred million. Like, yeah, you, <laughs> you don't have any stress. Weird. Hundred, hundred sheets in the bank. I wonder why. Make no mistake. I'm not worried for Joe at all, but just even as a Leafs fan, Outside looking in right now, it's got to, it's too much. It's I, I know. too much. I get it. But the, the season's about to start next week. Everybody's excited. And I can't wait for Jumbo to have his first off game and everybody just tears them to shreds. Yeah. See, maybe, maybe <laughs> it's just the Leafs fan and me coming out. And I recognize that this is just going to be hopes built up only to be dashed again in a few months. Right. Because we've seen this story so many times. I still can't get out of my mind the image of Doug Gilmore crawling off the ice when his career ended with that injury. I'm pretty sure it was versus New Jersey, but uh, Doug Gilmore's back with the Leafs and it's, you know, anyway, second period gets run into crawls off the ice, never to be seen again. This was supposed to be a great thing with Gilmore and all that magic coming back to Toronto to close out his career. And look how that ended. Now I would never wish that on Joe, by the way. Hey, as a, as a uh, unabashed Red Wings supporter, I love what the Leafs media and fans did to Larry Murphy because then he got sent to Detroit and he won a cup. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's been happening forever. Um, I want to, I'm on this Leafs note, I know we tend to concentrate on the uh, Ontario Hockey League, but I really want to know what Jumbo does to that locker room because there are a lot of young guys and a lot of young guys that are making a lot of money. Um, and I throw Tavares in there because he's younger than Joe Thornton, <laughs> who is literally a great so, so is Moses, I think, yeah. just for the record. But, but it, there is no secret that – and I, we talked to our, to our guest about him in the locker room, but there is no secret Joe Thornton is not scared to call out anyone at any time in that locker room. Even after – because you think of the saga he went through in San Jose, getting his C stripped from him, then it goes to Marlo. I can tell you after that C was stripped from him, he was not shy – it, he didn't care if it was Marlowe, if it was Pavelski, if it was Burns. He was calling you out, and it did not matter whether it was a bad period, whether it was late to practice. He was letting you know that this is his team, whether the media knows it or anyone outside this dressing room. If you are not doing what is expected, he is going to call you out face-to-face in front of everyone. And quite frankly, I love that. Yeah, so do I. And that's probably what gives me the most optimism, again, as the Leafs fan, after what happened with this team last year and how it didn't go the way it should have. Maybe this is just the kind of influence that the team needs, but I don't need to read tweets about Joe Thornton quotes. I just, I'm sorry. It's not that interesting when he says no. I get or it. Nope. I'm with you. Yeah. First, first overall selection and a former member of Team Canada at the World Juniors. There you go. And there, there are parallels, not just that, but to the media attention that the Leafs get and, and the Leafs media gives to players and, and the team, to the attention that the juniors get over the Christmas break. And sometimes it's been talked about many times by you and I in the past as well. Is it fair? Are we being a little bit too hard, putting too much pressure on these kids, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, I, I don't think that storyline appeared at all this year. Uh, And I thought what we ended up seeing with Canada losing that gold medal game is Canada seeing its first real test of the tournament at the wrong time, which was the gold medal game. Team USA was just better, but it was a great game in my opinion. I thought it was a fantastic hockey game. I was watching it uh, with my girlfriend and she said, how are you not nervous? I'm like, I'm enjoying the hockey game. I don't really like at this point, I don't really care. Like I'd obviously want Canada to win, but this is just a fantastic hockey game and something I haven't seen in a long time because you don't, I'll say it once. I'll say it a million times. You do not get the same type of hockey game in junior hockey that you watch in the NHL. There's too much money on the line in the NHL. There's too much at risk where these players are still trying to prove something at the junior game. And the junior world junior hockey championship is the peak of it. It is outstanding hockey at its peak. And we got an all timer in my opinion last night at the time of this recording, I thought it was a, it was a perfect game by the United States. Canada dominated everyone they saw the entire tournament. They were too fast. It was the typical Andre Tourney team. Come out of the gates, guns of blazing and end the game by the midway of the second period. Because the other team was like, we're going to have to put up with this for 60 minutes. Are you kidding me? They were 
all over everyone. Physical pucks in deep cliche, yes, but that's what they did. They put pressure on the defensemen. They were too fast. They knew where everyone was. They were structured. Back checking was great. And in that gold medal game, Canada looked slow. They looked frustrated and they looked tired. And I, I, it was the first time we'd seen them like that. And whether uh, Zegras had that bulletin board material, if you will, before the game, and whether that's true or not, that that was the first test they faced, I just think the States wanted it more. It's such a cliche to say, but somebody put it online, and I, I never thought of it that way. But you think of what these United States players have went through. Coming up to Canada, enemy territory, yes, majorly. The expectations that that – United States hockey program is put on the junior level in the past handful of years. That's their fourth gold now in what the last 10 years, I believe. And they're in a Canadian market where every media outlet, TSN, Sportsnet, the star, the Edmonton journal, the sports station in Edmonton radio, everybody is talking about the buzz saw that team Canada is and nobody's going to stop them. And if the States upset them in the gold medal, it's going to be a huge upset. You talk about bulletin board material. How about going through 40 days or whatever it was talk, listening to all the media talk about Canada, this Canada, that Canada, this Canada, that especially after the States were upset by the Russians in the first game. I thought they had all that going for them, and they put it all into a barrel and brought it all out in the gold medal game. It's interesting you mentioned earlier about not feeling any nerves while you're watching the game because I didn't either. I found myself, uh, you know, shouting at or or reacting to what was happening (laughs) while watching it a couple of times. But that's just because, as you said, the U.S. played a great game. Quite frankly, it looked like only one team had played the night before, and it wasn't, it wasn't the U.S. They were the better team, in my opinion, from the opening faceoff. But yep. I was invested in the, in the action of the game, but I didn't get that feeling you sometimes get like, oh, come on, you know, you got to win. It's this important. It's that important. And I wonder if part of that, Chris, is because we know that next year, chances are just as good that Team Canada is going to be in the gold medal game again. And I'm not trying to take away from the rest of the world. I mean, Sweden's been a great story at this tournament for how many years? The U.S. you've already talked about. But but we kind of know, like, watching Canada lose gold to the U.S. isn't us watching Canada lose its first chance at gold in the past 10 years or its only chance in the next 10. We know that chances are just as good that they'll be right back there again next year. This is not the end of anything per se except a run of gold medals that's all 100 percent. i think it makes it that way when you're coming off a gold medal that they just won last year too i think the biggest thing honestly and i hate to say it but i think it's the atmosphere you're watching a game without any fan atmosphere it's hard to get into it when other people aren't into it as well it's a lot easier when you see that team coming out of the tunnel and what i don't know 20,000. i have no idea how much that arena holds but thousands of people going absolutely banana lands like you know they would have 15 million in the 50 50 jackpot and nobody's in the building like I think it would have been a lot easier to if you will to get up for that game as fans as watching on your couch if that rink and that atmosphere is going crazy and you feel a part of it it's tough to watch and get into a game for me when it's something like that it's a hockey game with no fans in the building you're watching. And I was just enjoying the product, but I think a lot of it has to do with that atmosphere. I think next year, knock on wood, where fans are allowed inside the building, it'll be completely different from fans at home. Um, I just, I want to know, is it time for our annual talk of, Hey, everyone that turned into this tournament and talked about how, you know, how Quentin Byfield normally plays on a day-to-day basis. And you know, Dylan Cousins, second cousin, that maybe you should support your local junior team and go and watch this product day in and day out because it is a superior product and it is something that more eyes need to be on on a day-to-day basis, not from December 25th to January 9th. I don't think that talk ever gets old. It always bears repeating. Obviously, we are biased, but what we saw, again, just going back to the quality of that game that we saw, gold medal between Team Canada and Team USA, yeah, you're absolutely right. Take your pick of Ontario, where we're based, hockey league clubs, and you're going to see 
players just like that. Some of those very players, Connor McMichael, Cole Perfetti, Quinton Byfield, you already mentioned, et cetera. Jamie Drysdale, honest to goodness gracious, like can that guy play every minute of every game he's ever in? Because he's just such a treat to watch play the game of hockey. He's incredible. I'll, I'll be honest. In the semifinal game, I texted Aaron Cooney the broadcaster for the Erie Otters. And I said, this is just your annual reminder of how jealous I am that you, you get to watch Jamie Drysdale 68 games a year. I think I must have told six people during the tournament that he's my favorite player to watch in the Ontario Hockey League. And you watch any game. Like I thought, I actually said out loud, I'm like, am I watching a Jamie Drysdale bad game at the start of the gold medal game? I didn't think he was playing that well. I thought he looked slow. He was losing puck battles that he normally wins. And then all of a sudden he plays, what, 30 of the last 40 minutes, it seemed, him and Bowen Byram. And he just turned it on. Every time he has the puck, he's so electric. I love the the piece they did on his defensive game, working with Paul Ranger, um, concentrating on that defensive game and using your defensive abilities as a defenseman to make the forward do what you want to do. It's not just reacting to the forward. It's making them do what you want. And I just think his game is going to translate so well to the next level. And you see him and Cam Fowler on that Anaheim blue line, and you just shake your head. It's They're going to be tr- tremendous together. I was just going to say, obviously, it, it remains to be seen how the game translates at the pro level. I'm not concerned about it in any way, but I recall the the time we walked into the media room in Kitchener, having just come from Erie and we ran into a scout and just got chatting a little bit about the last Otters game we had been at. And he said, it's the same thing. Every time I scout Jamie Drysdale or every time I watch one of his games, just at the end of the night, you look down, of course, there's three points. Like that's what the, he, he dominated at the Ontario hockey or at the, Canadian Hockey League level, and and I have no doubt that his future is incredibly bright with Anaheim in in the NHL. I wouldn't be surprised if he either followed Cam Fowler's footsteps, jumped right into the league, took a couple years and became an all-star, or if he went the Ryan Ellis route where it took him a couple years, but now Ryan Ellis is talked about as one of the best defensemen in the league because he's used his skills to translate into the NHL. It's not easy, especially for a defenseman, to go to the NHL and be the same type of player, especially at the size of Jamie Drysdale, but his skating and the way he thinks the game gives him all the tools in the toolbox to translate that game into the next level. I thought he, I thought he was great. I mean, it's the same thing every year. I had a text from a buddy who I'd say follows junior hockey loosely. Um, Definitely not like a huge fan of the league or anything, but looks at the standings from time to time. And he's like, I'm not so sure about that Quentin Byfield pick. I'm like, how many times have you seen him play outside of wearing a Team Canada jersey? He was the youngest player on the team last year in his draft year, didn't get a shift in the gold medal game, and then the youngest player still on the team this year. Like, take your time, relax. You can't we, – we talked to someone this week um, on a later edition of the podcast who, who talked about that this tournament isn't a make or break for a lot of players because they've already seen them. It's more of a pro scout to know, okay, what does this player need to work on in the next step? Does Quinton Byfield have areas to improve? Absolutely. But I think a lot of people that follow the NHL get stuck up on the last five years or even you know six or seven years we've had where McDavid gets drafted first overall and comes in the NHL and owns the league. Austin Matthews comes in, four goals his first game. Patrick Laine comes in, rips the league up. There's all these players that come in and dominate right away. Look at a guy like Victor Hedman. Do you know how many years it took him to become a Norris Trophy winner, he was a second overall pick. There's talk. Of, there's already talk, like you look at the Hughes kid, and they're like, "Oh, how come he didn't put up a hundred points or eighty points?" <laughs> Not every player is number ninety-seven. It takes an elite talent to do what Connor and Austin have done in the National Hockey League. Some of these players, top picks, yes, they'll be in the NHL next year, but it's going to take them time to be a superstar or even a star at that next level. It's not easy. And I think you look at this tournament and you talked about the attention that these players have at this tournament. And it wasn't bad this year. I didn't think it compared to other years, but go on your Twitter today and search Quentin Byfield mentions. Like if I'm a player in that tournament, I'm never looking at Twitter ever again. It's embarrassing for what some of these players have to go through. We saw it just a few years ago. I can't remember the captain and I'm sorry, the captain who missed on the penalty shot and was just berated by all these people that watch the tournament and expect these players to, you know, lift heaven. It's like they're 18, 19 year old kids relax, give them time to develop. 
quite frankly, I would even extend that. The point is very well taken at this level, but I'd extend that to the pros as well. How many times lately have we seen wives or girlfriends or other family members getting involved to say, just press pause here for a minute. And social media has absolutely fueled that. The cesspool that is social media just makes it so easy for every armchair wannabe to throw out whatever they want for the internet to absorb. And it's, it's really, it's, it's the worst part of us, quite frankly. We, I think the internet and social media had the opportunity to be something great for this world, and it's went the complete opposite way. Yeah, it's a great debate, and we might have to get somebody on the podcast just to talk about that sometime. On a, on a much lighter note, I'm wearing a suit jacket today. What do you think? I noticed it. You yeah. are really dressed up. I know. Like, we're doing this, what we call a top and tail today for our interview, and I realized in the interview, you're wearing a suit jacket. The interview we did this week, you were wearing a suit jacket, and the, our guest was wearing a collar. And I'm like, I'm wearing a hoodie because I'm sitting at home in quarantine. I'm like, I got to spruce it up a little, you know? I want to match Farzi. I want to look as close to him as I can. We both got the bald head and glasses. I got to put on a suit jacket. I even went blue because I pictured, or I imagine you'd be wearing blue today. So suit jackets for you, Farzi. Every time I reach into my closet, I'm like, which blue suit am I going to put on today? I need to mix it up a little bit. I favor color for some reason. I thought you were going to say you had to put on some pounds. I got the quarantine I don't know how many. It's way beyond 15, though, pal. Yeah, I'm, I'm right with you there. It uh, hasn't been pretty for the old waistline. I, putting on, I don't know, like I'm, I'm hoping the OHL pushes it back to at least March so I can have some time to lose some weight because I <laughs> won't be wearing a suit to the game. We're It'll not going <laughs> to. No, this jacket, a T-shirt, and the black shorts I'm wearing. <laughs> we're not going to fit on our bus seats together when it comes to that if we don't fix this oh, in a hurry. It is I'll not tell pretty. You. Um, you mentioned the name Ryan Ellis a little bit ago. He and Taylor Hall, key parts of an OHL team that factor into a story with our guest upcoming. One more little nugget there for you. Quickly before we go, I just want to touch on one more thing, and then we'll get to our guest because I know people are excited to hear from him. But uh, can we just talk briefly from the semifinal game versus Russia and the offside? Can we, and I, I'm going to sure. blame I'm going to blame social media for this as well. Why is everybody so bent out of shape about the offside challenge? Look, I don't like challenges in the first place, but, but stop with the, uh, the fact that the challenge shouldn't have happened or been allowed or you'd be embarrassed to do it. No, and, and forget it. Like, I don't care if there was 40 seconds of zone time after the offside was missed. The zone time doesn't happen if the offside is called. So perfectly legitimate, perfectly within the rules. If you don't like the rule, change it. But stop all this bitching and moaning and whining and bellyaching about Andre Turney using the rule at his disposal. Great call on his part. This may seem odd to our regular listeners, but I agree with you. Oh my gosh, what? I I wholeheartedly, 100% agree. Is the rule terrible? Sure. Sure. I, I get it. But like you said, that zone time doesn't happen did that zone entry have anything to do with the goal no other than it allowed them to gain the offensive zone so rules are rules you have that in the book for video replay video coach calls down to tourney and says hey bear that's offside man so he challenges no goal it's part of the rules that 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 like it's the same with the the nhl and the offside where now your foot can be above the ground well was it a terrible rule before probably but it was the rule and now you have this room in double IHF where you can go back and look and it was clearly offside. So the goal comes back. I have no problem with it. I get why people are upset and I can only imagine if it was a close game and that was Canada getting that call and everybody would have just been up in arms about it. But I think that game's conclusion was already done and most people probably just felt bad for Russia to, to be honest. Cause I know I started to even, and that says a lot when I'm getting feeling sad for the Russians, but um yeah, it, it's a rule, so you got to abide by it. I have no problem with it. You mentioned Bear. That's the nickname for Andre Turigny. Oh, yeah. There's a story about that coming up in this week's podcast with our guest. We have a previous episode with Andre Turigny where he wouldn't tell us how he got the nickname, but you can check that out on a previous episode. Brian Kilray, Jack Miller, Graham Bonner, who's a great uh, triumph to tragedy back to successful life story used to play for the Sioux Greyhounds all of those episodes well if you're here you probably know that but subscribe give us a like give us a review send us an email 
farwellandpope at gmail.com. And uh, I'll just shut up from here and let you tee up, Popper, our guest for this week. I'm just going to say on that email or on Twitter or however you contact us, if you want to hear from somebody around the league you think would be a good guest on this podcast, let us know. We're always open to suggestions. Oh, and good um, point on Twitter. Real quick, we are part yeah. of the cesspool of social media. So at Farwell underscore OHL or at underscore Chris Pope. Nailed it. Um, why is our guest this week's Twitter handle Regal? Do you know? I don't. You don't. We should have asked him. Anyway, most I, Kitchener I've, Rangers. I've actually always wondered. I should. We yeah, should have asked him. Should have asked him. Yeah. Most Kitchener Ranger fans know who I'm talking about right now. Former assistant coach for the Plymouth Whalers, former assistant coach, head coach, and general manager for the Kitchener Rangers. A Memorial Cup winner, uh, head coach in the American Hockey League, an assistant coach with the Leafs, an assistant coach with the San Jose Sharks and now an assistant coach with the Stanley Cup contender Vegas Golden Knights. He is Pete DeBoer's right-hand man and has been for quite a while. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Spot. Steve Spot, every time I get a chance to talk to you about hockey, I think back to one of our conversations we had when you were the head coach and GM in Kitchener. You could have been a teacher. You could have stuck with that. It would have been a lot more job security. <laughs> You ever, do you ever wonder what brought you on this path? Well, it, it's, it's interesting. I'm going to jump in a vehicle tomorrow and drive three and a half days with a dog to Las Vegas. And I'm wondering right now, you know, <laughs> when teachers are, are you know, uh, at the same time, I won't, I, I give a lot of credit to the teachers, what they're dealing with right now. But yeah, you know, sometimes Mike, I recognize that, uh, you know, there are awesome challenges with job security at this level, but at the same time, um, you know, we're very fortunate to do what we do. And it's been a good path. It's been a great run um, through junior hockey, the American Hockey League, and now the National Hockey League. But, you know, and I'm sure we'll talk about it shortly. Nothing will top uh, my experiences in Kitchener. That's one for, for the ages for me. I'm sure we will get to that, uh, your time in Kitchener. But for uh, the listeners that aren't sure, what, what has changed in your life like right, right now? Like what's going on as a, as, a, as a coach in the National Hockey League? Yeah, no different than uh, than junior hockey fans. I, I think we're all waiting for a, a firm date to to hopefully get some some light on training camp. Um, you know, the, the date they've given us right now is be prepared for January third, and hopefully start mid January. Um, but uh, again, Chris, we don't know until this happens. Um, you know, we can only be ready as a coaching staff. Our players in Vegas are working hard every day uh, on and off the ice to prepare. So, you know, we'll be good to go. You know, I think the bubble experience will serve us well. Uh, we didn't get to where we wanted to get uh, with the Stanley Cup, but I do believe our preparation going into start this shortened season should be good because we just did it a couple of months ago. You talk, Steve, about that time in Kitchener as, as being a highlight, and obviously Rangers fans uh, know it well and remember the era and are happy to hear that sort of thing. But as I was thinking back on having this conversation tonight, I'm thinking about Steve Spott and Pete DeBoer from Plymouth, where you had success, over to Kitchener. That's about as much of a junior hockey coup as I can recall, certainly, in, in my career. What, what was that transition like coming from Plymouth to a conference rival in Kitchener? Well, we knew, we knew our time in Plymouth was up. We, we, we were pretty sure that Pete Carmanis, our owner at the time, the owner of the Carolina Hurricanes, was probably going to go in a different direction. So we were, we were pretty sure we might be looking for new opportunities. And um, I remember we were on a golf course, shockingly, Peter and I in Michigan. And when he received a call uh, saying that Ted Scarf would like to meet with him in London, Ontario, and maybe meet halfway. And uh, Pete met with Ted Scarf, I believe Mike Moore at the time, uh, Steve Biankowski, and, um, and came back to Plymouth saying that uh, we may have an opportunity to, to go over and take over the Kitchener Rangers. And, when, you, when you're in junior hockey, there's certain jobs that obviously excite you. And, uh, you know, for us coming back as Canadian-born, uh, you know, people, our families, um, it, was, it was a dream job at that time. And, and obviously, uh, you know, one that uh, is a dear chapter in both of our lives. It seemed like after that, Plymouth and Kitchener faced off every playoffs. <laughs> Did those matchups mean a little more to you, given what you just said? Well, it did because I had family on, in Plymouth. My nephew, Stephen Weiss, was playing for the Plymouth Whalers, and we had drafted Stephen in the first round. I assured my sister and brother-in-law that 
we would look after their son for four years in Plymouth and a year later I took off for Kitchener. So that didn't bode well at the, at the dinner table, I can tell you. But, um, you know, those were heated rivalries and I can still remember Peter Kanko scoring some big goals uh, in, in Plymouth and Derek Roy, obviously, with that group in 03. And um, we had some great rivalries over the years. Obviously, with Mike Vellucci, did a tremendous job taking over for Plymouth as a coach and general manager. So heated rivalries and, uh, and great hockey, I think, for, for both cities at that time. That rivalry and the 2003 Memorial Cup run with the Kitchener Rangers. Western Conference final, Steve. You lose game five at home. You got to go down to Plymouth for game six. Now, fans tell me to this day that they knew if you won game six on the road, you'd come back home. And I mean, hindsight, whatever. Or the fans just remember it that way. But they thought it's guaranteed in game seven. And certainly uh, you took care of business after that. and, And there was no real challenge on the way to the Memorial Cup. What was your mindset, though, as a coaching staff, going back to Plymouth, knowing that your season's on the line? Well, again, I, I recall the pregame speech. And if you, if you go back to Derek Roy, if you talk to Derek Roy, we, we had commented to the team before that game. We believed, uh, as a coaching staff, that if we won that game, game six, that we could win the Memorial Cup. That's how important that one game was. And, you know, the rest is history. We went on to, to be successful. But... We knew that game six was going to determine our opportunity to win the Memorial Cup, not just win the series. We thought we could then have a chance to win a Memorial Cup. That's how special both those teams were, Mike, not just Kitchener, but Plymouth too. Both great teams, and we knew whoever came out of that series probably had a really good chance to win a Memorial Cup. What was that trip home like? Well, it was good. Um, obviously, we took a, you know, a sigh of relief, but we knew game seven – when you get into the playoffs and you guys have been through enough game sevens to broadcasting, there's no guarantees in any game seven buildings don't matter. Um, but we are very, very fortunate to, to wrap that one up at home um, and then move on to the finals. But uh, it was a sigh of relief. Uh, it gave us a, a nice shot of confidence and uh, we just knew we had to finish off uh, a very good Plymouth team. I, I remember another game seven, not to jump too far into the timeline, but I can't help but think of it. And it just so happened to be against the Plymouth Whalers again. Tyler Randall had been suspended in the first round versus Owen Sound. He's got to sit for 10 games. The only way he comes back is if you get to game seven in round two against Plymouth. He's back for that game seven and he scores four for you and you win on the road. It's funny because Pete Krupski and I still talk. Uh, Pete now... <laughs> does the U.S. National Development Team program games. And to this day, I assure you both, that game still bothers him. That Tyler Randall, and I'm not kidding you, Mike, that bothers him to this day that Tyler Randall scored four goals that night. So it's, a, again, um, I had an opportunity to work with Tyler a little bit after that. Um, and you know what, it's, it, it's, he's an amazing young man. He's a power forward. But uh, he was also a scorer back in minor midget when he was in Brampton. So it was nice to see uh, his gloves were used not just for physicality, but for scoring that night and, and obviously got us through that, that, that difficult moment. You mentioned as a coaching staff that you guys felt if you won that game six, you could win the Memorial Cup. On that run, was there ever a doubt? Because that was a stacked team. Yeah. No, that, Chris, that was, that was a real good team. And um, to this day, the, we, you know, the communication between Gregory Campbell, Steve Eminger, Derek Roy, Scott Dickey, you know, those lines of communication. When you win a championship like that, you know, those are, those are friendships that you, you create for a lifetime. And we have created that. And I do hope, and I will put the challenge out now to Steve Biankowski, that at some point that we can have, a, and Joe Birch, of course, that we can have a reunion with that team. I would love to get back with that group of guys and, and see them now with their families and allow them now to get mad at Pete and I as adults and not as young men anymore and, and, and air some of the, maybe some of the challenges that we put them through back in the day. But you know what, it, it's great. And um, it was a very, very good team. But um, I do remember that Memorial Cup vividly in, in Quebec. Uh, the difficulties, obviously, with Kelowna and how good a team they were. Um, but at the end of the day, as you said, we had a very good team and a real good belief system uh, and great depth. You know, you talk about Paul McFarland. I talked to Paul recently, who's now the coach and GM with the Kingston Frontenac. Just guys like that and the depth of your lineup, just good character people that uh, allowed us to be successful. Are you suggesting that along the way, Spotter, there might have been some tough love from the coaching staff? Yeah, you know, with that group there was, you know. And I, I, when you think back, Mike, we sent Derek Roy home for an off-ice issue. And you know what? Um, those are the things that you talk about Pete DeBoer. You know what? Uh, uh, the player's biggest fan, do anything for any of his players. But at the same time, we knew we were 
in, in Kitchener and Waterloo. And we had a bigger obligation to those young men on and off the ice. And um, so, yeah, you know, it, uh, some tough love back in those days, but at the same time, um, those players were able to handle it and, and, and really thrive on it. So it was a, a magical run um, in my trophy case here at the cottage. I still have, you know, my ring and I stare at it and look at it. Those are memories for a lifetime and I'm very proud to be a part of it. Certain people in the media around Kitchener say it was the only time they saw Pete DeBoer smile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I've, I've seen that a lot, you know, and he's, you know, and he, but back in the day, you know, you talk to the referees. Now we laugh. That's the great thing. When you, when you talk about the referees and guys that we used to cross back in the day or opposing coaches, you know, obviously the hunters and um, it, it's great that we can all go back in time and, and discuss how, those rivalries were so real back then, you know, going up to Sault Ste. Marie and having to win a tough game in Sault Ste. Marie, Mike Duco having a great game up in Sault Ste. Marie in the playoffs. Like so many great memories that we can all think, think about. Um, but at the same time, uh, players have evolved. Coaches have evolved. Um, you know, and, and I think that's the great thing about our game. We're, we're never stopping uh, with regards to learning and evolving. And, and I think both Pete and I have evolved over the years. So speaking of that relationship, Steve, obviously you and, and Pete and your relationship continues to evolve, but you have been synonymous with one another in coaching. Can you take us back to the beginning when you and Pete first got behind a bench together and, and this journey for the both of you began? You know, it goes back to really to our, our, our teenage years when uh, a great New York Ranger, Edmonton Oiler and Detroit Red Wing by the name of Adam Graves uh, connected Peter and I. Uh, Adam and I were best man at each other's weddings and best friends growing up in the Toronto area. And he went on to play for the Windsor Spitfires, the CompuWare Spitfires, where he met a young player by the name of Peter DeBoer as a teammate. And over the years, Pete and I got to know each other through Adam. Um, I was teaching in, in, in the Toronto area at the time and coaching Tier 2 Junior A Hockey in Markham when uh, Pete called and asked if i do some scouting for him just at the Tier 2 Junior A level. So I did, uh, and that evolved into uh, – a meeting with my mom and dad where they asked, uh, you know, what did you want to do long-term? And I told them I wanted to, to join Pete on his staff with, with Plymouth in the OHL. And I'll never forget to this day when my dad said, you know, is Peter going to, and he knew Peter. He said, you know, are they going to pay you full time for this? And I said, yeah. I said, Pete's going to give me $15,000 to do this for the year. And you know what? My dad, to his credit, he looked at me, he said, you, you got to do that. And uh, we laugh about that right now, but it's the best, uh, best chance I ever took. And uh, obviously I owe my career to Pete and, and his leadership over the years. What is it about that relationship that seems to work so well? You know, we're Felix and Oscar, really, in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, I think we know each other so well. Um, I, I think, you know, trust in any relationship is, is the most important thing. And um, I, I think, you know, for me, I'm a very detailed person. Uh, uh, I, I'd like to think that I, I'm, you know, very detailed when it comes to uh, you know, Pete and I talked about the game, the systems of the game. Um, so I think maybe I, I, you know, I take some of that off of him. Um, and, and again, it's having a conduit between his office and, and, and the dressing room. And I think I take a lot of pride in the messaging from Pete to the players where sometimes it's not always a great message, but um, my job is to make sure that they understand what Pete's trying to, to, to portray or get across. So I think the one thing I've taken a lot of pride in is the messaging from Pete's office into the dressing room and my relationship with the players to make sure that, you know, at the end of the day, they recognize that we're all in this together and his messages for the best of the hockey club. What was it like, Steve, in those years in Kitchener after Pete had left to go to Florida and you were the head coach and general manager without the guy that you'd worked a bench with for so long? Did you take any of what you had learned with him and, and, adopt it to your own style? Yeah, that's a great question, Mike. I think yes and no. I, I think when it came to the systems, um, it, Pete's tactical knowledge of the game is, is unparalleled, how smart he is when it comes to the game. But he has a coaching style that not all of us can replicate. And I had to be, and this is Pete's words, you got to do it your way. You have to be your own man and your own coach. My communication style might be a little bit different. And so yes and no, um, you know, Tough shoes to fill. I, I think about that to this day, you know, to take over for a Pete DeBoer in Kitchener, you know, is not the easiest job in the world. But at the same time, I felt I was ready at that time to take on that challenge. Um, he was more than ready to coach in the National Hockey League. And we had talked about maybe reconnecting one day down the road. And obviously we have, but tremendous big shoes to fill. 
Um, but I had to do it my way and, and make sure that my communication style was best for me and what I thought was best for the players. A lot of the times uh, an assistant coach can kind of be that the nice guy as opposed to the head coach being the, the pardon my language, but hard ass. Um, how difficult was you or was it for you to go from that assistant for certain players to then being the head coach the next year? Yeah, it's hard. You know, I think the big thing on that, Chris, is having individual meetings with your leadership group that you pull in the Dan Kellys, the Jeff Skinners, the guys that you're going to lean on to make sure they recognize that you can't just be the guy that they call at 11 o'clock at night and, and you know, lean on, that there's going to be a little bit of a more of a distant relationship now. And that's where the Paul Fixters, the Troy Smiths, those guys now had to carry those shoes. So I think for me, it was just leaning on the older guys. We were very, very fortunate to have a great leadership group when I was there. And just rec- and they did a good job of respecting my position, knowing that, yes, there was big shoes to fill, but at the same time, um, they were respectful of, of, of how things were going to be done. Um, and they were very respectful of my situation. So I appreciated that. We're coming back to that Troy Smith name in a second. I promise you that. But you mentioned a couple of those players, Steve, and, and a player that always stands out to me that I know you recruited and, and, and wanted from the first time you saw him, and that was Gabriel Landeskog. Tell us about the first time you saw Landeskog play. The first time uh, I was in Fargo, North Dakota with Team Canada. Uh, Mike Johnson and I were coaching our under-18 team, and we were playing against a very talented Swedish national team. And there was a player playing for Sweden that had a full mask on because he was an underage player and had to wear a full mask in EIIHF uh, events. Um, And it was Gabe. Unbeknownst to me, it was Gabriel. And he had scored a big goal and came by our bench and gave us a look and you know, how dare he, how dare he do that? And all I remember is saying to myself, I better find out who that kid is. And it was Gabe. Um, We went on to, to recruit him. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of people don't remember. We didn't get him in that import draft. Mike Felucci took him from Plymouth and we took Thomas Tatar um, and ended up trading Thomas for Gabriel and getting him eventually to Kitchener. Um, And again, there's certain players as a coach that you kind of think of, oh, boy, that was a special one. Uh, and to this day, when I go to Colorado or when Gabe, I see Gabe, whether in San Jose or now in Vegas, um, I saw him in the bubble. We were in the same hotel um, with Nazem Kadri. It was, it was really, really neat to see him and, and spend some time. He has a home just outside Toronto now. So those are relationships that uh, will go on for a lifetime. And as you said, Mike, one of those special Kitchener Ranger players that uh, I'm very proud to have been a small part of. I'm sure it didn't take long for you to know that he'd be a good player, but did you ever picture how good of a person he would be? He, well, his, he speaks English better than most of us. So that, that was the, <laughs> one of the best the things that I really took out of it. When he came over on his recruiting trip with his father, I, I just was amazed at how well he spoke our language. And um, So the transition for him to come into North America was seamless. Um, but no, just a tremendous ambassador. Um, again, you know, to make him the first European captain in Kitchener, um, the way he became part of that community, his maturity at 17 and 18 was unparalleled. So, you know, the youngest captain in, in Colorado avalanche history. Um, no, he's, he's sometimes you get lucky in the draft and, uh, and we got lucky on that one. He, uh, just a real, real special young man and obviously a world-class player. You mentioned Troy Smith's name a moment ago. I promised we'd come back to it. Here's another co- connection, Steve, to the, the Plymouth Whalers, but yeah. Troy, who, eventually became head coach of the Kitchener Rangers for a couple of seasons, always struck me as that guy who just kind of showed up one day to help out at practice with a hell of a work ethic, and he never left. What was that relationship like between you and Pete and this Troy Smith kid? I, again, it's, it's relationships between players. And Troy was always that player that you know, was first on the ice. He was last off, um, was a great depth defenseman for us in, in Plymouth and just a real good character guy did everything for the team. He would sacrifice personal achievements for team success um, and just became one of those players that we always admired. And eventually in his overage year became a real good player for us, uh, attended Colorado's NHL camp, went on to get his degree at St. FX university. Um, and just one of those guys to this day that I consider a best friend. And um, you know, he's changed careers. He's doing very, very well now. Um, in, in the car industry. Um, and you know what? I couldn't be more proud of him. He's a guy that I talk to weekly and uh, will always be a part of my life and is a great hockey man. And I do believe he'll get back in at some point, maybe in a different position, whether it be scouting uh, or development. But at the same time, uh, couldn't be more happy to have him as, a, as what I consider a best friend. 
You mentioned another name, and Mike always talks about his playoff performance in his final season for the Rangers and Jeff Skinner. When he yeah. got when he got drafted, did you think he was coming back? Listen, there's a couple of things. You go back as a coach or a general manager, and you, and you think, boy, I would have done things different back then. And I remember we were playing. We had lost a heartbreaking series to Windsor, and we had a line with uh, with Skinner, Landis Cog, and Jeremy Moran. And we did not load up at the deadline because I knew I was going to have all those guys back the following year. Well, we did. <laughs> Jeremy, Jeremy fell into one of those loopholes where being drafted out of the U.S. development program made him eligible for the American Hockey League. So he was gone to Rockford, Chicago's farm club, and obviously we never saw Jeff again. So that's the one that, to this day, and Bob Bugner and I have become very close friends, who's now the head coach in San Jose. We work together in San Jose. And, you know, that's the one that really got away from me. If I hadn't known then what I know now, I definitely would have loaded up at the deadline. Okay, but since you bring that up, and we won't go into all the details, but you're right. Heartbreaking, we'll just leave it at that, that series versus Windsor, the West Final, when really nobody expected Kitchener to be there. That notwithstanding, game four, on home ice. Yeah, yeah, that's what have been in Kitchener, that's right. And you told me years after the fact, a line change, you didn't get Dan Kelly on the ice when you wanted to. 100%, yeah. That's, that's one of those ones, Mike, that uh... – we didn't get Dan on the ice. They had Taylor Hall on the ice. We turned over a puck right in front of Boogie's bench in Windsor, with Windsor. And I saw Taylor Hall streak down the ice and give them that shot of momentum that they needed. We had, we had sunk a couple of 40-foot punts in that series. We scored, I believe, from center in game three. Gabe, I think, flipped one in that went in late from center. Um, so we had sunk a few 40-foot putts. Um, and that team was loaded in Windsor. We look at their lineup. They were loaded. But, yeah, that's one that got away because it would have been nice to get a crack at the Barry Colts at, at that time. Um, we had a young team but an extremely talented team. Um, but it would have been nice to get another crack at Barry uh, in, in the championship uh, that year. You've talked about wearing both hats as a general manager in that series and wanting to load up and then now as a head coach and not getting the line change you wanted. How tough is it wearing both hats? It's hard, and I don't know. I know Mike McKenzie is going to do it. Um, I think it's getting harder and harder. Um, you know, it's become a global sport uh, now that the recruiting, the scouting uh, is so wide. It's so vast that you better have a good staff, and Mike does in Kitchener. He's got a tremendous scouting staff. He's got the support of Murray Hebert with him. Um, but I think the game has grown now that I, I do believe um, junior hockey has really become a, a small version of these National Hockey League teams where – you need to have a full management and full scouting staff because of the competitiveness of the industry and how detailed that, that the sport has become. So, you know what, uh, Mike has shown he can do it. Um, he has a lot of great support around him. He's got a lot of great support um, from previous people that have worked in Kitchener. I think about myself, Pete DeBoer, Mike Van Ryan, to name a few guys that will always be there to assist when we can. Um, but, it, uh, you know, Chris, I do believe now if I ever had to go back that, you probably would look at maybe having two jobs fill those roles. But at the same time, Mike's proven us wrong. He's done a great job doing it. I want to touch on one more specific player because it got me thinking, Steve, when you were talking about maybe wishing you had loaded up, Skinner graduates as an 18-year-old. But before that, and it speaks to how difficult junior hockey can be. It would, it would drive you mad sometimes. Mikhail Bodker, he went up before you expected him to, and all of a sudden, you're coming back into the Ontario Hockey League with a team that has a major hole in it. Yeah, and I've talked to Don Maloney about that. We've had some, <laughs> <laughs> we have, you know, and I've talked to Don. I've run into him a number of times, and every time I see him, I bring up Mikel. Um, but you know what? I, I, now that we're at pro hockey, you can understand their thought process. You know, let's get him up. Let's get him training with our training staff. Let's get him out with our power skating coach. Let's let him learn what it's like to be a pro. You know, he's a top 10 NHL pick. You know, what has he got left to do in junior hockey? I get their thought process now that I'm on the other side of it. But at that time, I do believe Mikel could have used another year of junior. And I do believe that 20 years later that he could have used another year of junior hockey, um, you know, just to make sure he was he was prepared to make that jump. And what had ended up happening, as you well know, he went from the National Hockey League and then had to go back to the American Hockey League. And that's a, that's a tough pill to swallow for a player of that caliber. But, you know, um, you know, I've made sure uh, Kitchener Ranger fans have to know that I went to bat for them with, with Don Maloney on that one. I normally don't like these questions because it's hard to pick teams from different eras. But if you were to 
pick, if you could coach one team again, would it be the 03 or the 08? Oh boy, both special. You know what? I would take I would take either one, Chris. Um, just really, really good teams with good people. Um, so I think I, I would take either one of those groups. Um, you know, the 03 team, we probably have carved out some more friendships from that group off the ice. But again, when you're dealing with the type of players that we were dealing with in both of those years, you know, I think any coach uh, currently or in the past would say, yeah, that'd be a great 23 guys to work with. So either one, both very, very special. Which team wins though? If they were to play. Oh boy. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I got, I, I know there's going to be a bunch of players on both sides. I think that one might've gone to a 20 man shootout. I don't think <laughs> that one would have been tough to figure out. We would have need uh, maybe Dan Kelly to score one in, in, in a shootout uh, for us to get a win in 08 or like I said, uh, maybe TJ Easton in 03 would have got a big goal. So it would have been a depth guy getting it for either team. Okay, one more specific guy, Steve, but I think uh, his his reputation goes without saying, particularly in Kitchener, but in junior hockey generally. He would have been a pup, as Don Cameron called him in the 03 team, but he emerged into, well, in fact, was just voted as the best Ranger of all time, Mike Richards. Yeah, you know what? And Pete and I followed that. I think it's important that junior hockey fans know that we were following that poll because we we really wanted to see how that was going to play out. And it's such a storybook franchise that I can't imagine going through and having to pick one player out of all of all of the alumni that have come through the odd. But very, very fitting. When you think about the amount of rings, I talk about the one Memorial Cup ring that I stare at. You know, when you think about his career with Memorial Cups, World Juniors, OHL Championships, a Calder Cup, an Olympic Stanley Cup, uh, or an Olympic, two Stanley Cups, like he's he's done it all. So I think, you know, very, very fitting, not just for Kitchener, but his pro career, his, what he's done on the international stage, uh, just a tremendous ambassador of, of our team. And it was great seeing him. We didn't see him a ton in Philadelphia, but then we got to see him quite a bit in L.A. And uh, again, always getting that little smile and warm up or getting that little smile in pregame skate. You know, those little smiles or nods speak a thousand words. I reached out to a former player of yours trying to get some dirt ahead of this interview. I won't name him, but uh, he did you a favor and didn't tell me much. Um, but everyone knows you're a bit of a prankster. Do those pranks continue nowadays? You know what? Not the same. I haven't canceled any Memorial Cups, I can tell you that. Um, <laughs> can we that get that story? Me, that one got me in a little bit of hot water. Um, Has Biankowski forgiven you yet? Not, that's still one in 08. <laughs> that got me in a lot of trouble, and I'll never forget doing that. Um, but, no, that one, that one may have topped uh, all of it. But, no – you know, again, I think we've all got our personalities. Um, you know what? I think part of my job, you know, being around Pete, being around, uh, you know, our coaching staff is at the right time at this level. Obviously, it's a little bit different than a junior is making sure when you can lighten things up that you do. And I think the players appreciate that. The best thing I can say, Chris, is a regular season game in the National Hockey League is like a game you know, a final game of a Memorial Cup. That's how much pressure is on every night at this level. So it's a little bit different, but at the same time, when you can get a laugh, uh, I definitely make sure that I can get a dig in here, a dig in there. Real quick, just on the heels of that, I, your peak, were you a better pranker than Flower, or does he have you beat? No, Flower's good. He's, I've seen some of his. He's, he's world-class. He's not only a Hall of Fame goaltender, he's a Hall of Fame prankster. So, no, he's, he's the real deal, so I'm not even going to go near him. And these guys have unlimited budgets, so there's certain guys that you can mess with, and Flower in that group of guys is not one that I'll ever cross. Steve, when you, when you consider now uh, where you're at, you talk about that Memorial Cup ring that you've got and you, you look at, but there's obviously a reason you do what you do. Chris and I know firsthand how competitive you are. What does the Stanley Cup mean and the pursuit of that goal it's everything um the sacrifice the family sacrifice um you know it's a lot mike i I think that that's what you're driven to do to do now like when you go down to the hockey hall of fame in downtown toronto and you see your family name on a memorial cup you, you take a ton of pride in that and your family does and your children your grandchildren will be able to recognize it one day but you know, now it's all about the Stanley Cup. And, and Pete and I have been fortunate to work with great teams. Um, again, another great team in Vegas. So that's what drives us. Um, we've been doing this a long time now, but we still have uh, the exuberance that we had when we were in our early and mid-20s to win this thing. And that's the energy we bring to the rink every day. And our players, I think our, 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 our players, 
uh, recognize that. Um, they know how much we, you know, put forth, um, as does all of our staff. Um, but that's what drives us now. We really, really want to make sure that we can do everything in our power to bring a Stanley Cup to Las Vegas. One of your former players just signed in Toronto, Joe Thornton. What did he mean to that team as part of that coaching staff? You know, uh, we talked about Mike Richards, guys. Uh, Joe Thornton is, is in that class of people. He's in that class uh, of player. That Joe is a guy that is a surrogate coach. Um, he's last of a dying breed when it comes to uh, communication in the locker room. Sheldon Keith called me last week when I was in Vegas to ask me about Jumbo. Um, and we had a candid conversation about that. He's going to drive his players on in practice. He's going to drive his players on the bench in games. Uh, he's a very vocal, passionate player. You know, history speaks for him, for itself. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer. And, you know, he's a player for me that exudes everything in a person. You know, his preparation, his leadership, uh, his commitment to his team. It's always team first. You know, his game now is changing because he may not be the first-line center on the Toronto Maple Leafs, but he's got the mentality of a first-line center still in the National Hockey League, and he brings that passion to the rink every day. So I think for Leaf fans, he's going to be a tremendous, tremendous asset. You won't get to see what he does in the locker room or maybe in the practice rink, but I can assure Leaf fans that he's going to be a huge addition to that team. From the outside Looking in, Steve, you think about Las Vegas as a site for a, a pro sports team and all the, the lights and the distractions. What's it like when you're actually there? Does it get old fast? No. You know what? Again, if you haven't seen a game in that building in T-Mobile Arena, it's second to none. It really is. San Jose was special. It was loud. It was, it was you know, fans were on top. But this is a whole different level of entertainment. You know, they got the blue man group going on between periods. They've got you know, rock bands going on before the games. It's, it's a full entertainment package when you come to one of the games there. So it was a very difficult building to come in as, as an opposition coach. Obviously, the rivalry between San Jose and Vegas is storied now. Um, and to come in there now as, as the home team's coach is a heck of a lot easier because it's a tough, tough building for the opposition to come into, how loud it is in there. How tough was the bubble? You know what, uh, Chris, it wasn't that bad. Um, you know, people talk about that all the time. Um, you're staying in a beautiful hotel, um, walkable to the rink. Um, yes, it has its challenges with regards to maybe not being able to get out and walk, you know, through the city. And, um, you know, there is fences around the hotel. And you're only allowed to go to a certain number of restaurants. But the National Hockey League did an incredible job making this as easy as they could for the players and, and the staffs that were involved. So, you know, tough waking up in a hotel room for 51 nights, absolutely. But at the same time, I'd give my left arm to do that over again to have that experience because we were treated incredibly well by Edmonton um, and everybody that was involved in the support staff on and off the rink did a tremendous job to make it as easy as they could for us. Hard leaving families behind, that, that goes without saying, but they knew what we were doing. There was a purpose. You know, a lot of us have been involved with World Juniors or World Championships, so it was just an extended version of that. But I can tell you the National Hockey League, with the testing, the protocols, it was second to none. It was a tremendous experience, really, in the end. When you mention rivalries, I, I want to jump back to the Ontario Hockey League, if I can, because we talked a lot, obviously, about Kitchener-Plymouth. But Kitchener-London was there when you were there and, and remains there. Mike Richards and Corey Perry famously at, at center ice yeah. in the playoffs, uh, you know, Windsor, uh, Belleville in that 08 run during the OHL final. I mean, lots, but what, what rivalry rivalries, pardon me, do you remember best? You know what, you know, London comes to the forefront. Um, but again, I talked to my good friend, Mike Fuda in Owen Sound, who was in Owen Sound at the time. Boy, we had some hard battles against Owen Sound. And then Dave Barr, who worked with us in, in, in San Jose for the last number of years was in Guelph. So, you know what, Kitchener just seems to be that one team that's a magnet to a lot of other teams that they want to beat. And, and we tell the players that. We don't hide from that. And I'm sure Mike McKenzie doesn't hide from that. When players come into Kitchener from the opposition teams, that's like going into the Air Canada Centre or Maple Leaf Gardens. They know it's a special place to play. No different than when we go into Ottawa, Mike. You know what? There were certain buildings that you go into and players just feel, boy, this, is like, this feels like the NHL. And that's the feeling that you get when you go into Kitchener as an opposition coach. And I really see you see a lot of the opposition's best games in Kitchener because those kids love playing in that building and coaches love coaching in that building because it really does give you an NHL atmosphere. 
as being somebody who recruited players like Gabriel to Kitchener and then gave those speeches that you just talked about to players, what, what were some of the things you would say trying to recruit a player to Kitchener? Well, again, I think, you know, for, for us, it was, it was kind of a, you know, a three headed um, approach. The hockey speaks for itself, Chris, you can look at the, in the banners, you can look at the success of the players that have come through there, but then you look at the educational opportunities that are in, in that area. When you think about the high schools that we're putting our players up in, when you think about Laurier, University of Waterloo, Conestoga College, it offered everything for a player academically. And then our host family situation. You know, we were blessed to have just tremendous families that would take our players in and house them for eight or nine or ten months. So, really, we had uh, the triple crown in Kitchener when it came to the hockey, uh, the success of the program on the ice, the academic opportunities, uh, and then obviously the billets in the community. So, it was a three-headed uh, crown that we had, and uh, that to me sold itself. So that's why we were able not only to get some of the great Canadian kids, but great American and and, and uh, European players as well. We talked to Andre Turney on this podcast last year, and yep. uh, he's got the nickname Bear, which, by the way, scared the bejeepers out of me. When I, how am I going to talk to this guy? Anyway, uh, he says you gave him the nickname, but he wouldn't tell us why. Yeah, th- that goes back to an under-18. <laughs> um <laughs> Myself, Bill Peters, and Andre worked together at an Ivan Holinka event, and um, he got known as the Bear at that at that moment. A lot of it, the 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 PG version is because he just liked to sleep a lot in in nap a lot. So we'll leave it at that. But at the same time, he is a big cuddly bear. Um, and you know, we still speak. We spoke actually quite a bit going into the event that's coming up next week because he's in the same bubble that we had just finished. Um, and again, a friendship that transcends coaching or hockey. Um, we both know each other's families and, and the like. And, um, you know, I think for him, uh, he's the right man for the job this time of year. The details that are involved with what we're dealing with with COVID in that type of situation. Uh, hockey Canada picked a tremendous, tremendous coach and, and leader to do that. But he will always be known as the bear between uh, coaches. And um, Bill Peters and I can always keep that one uh, to ourselves. All right, and real quick, along those lines, though, because his name came up earlier, Bob Bugner, there's yeah. something, I don't think I have all the dots to connect here, but there's something about either a photocopier or a printer and Bob Bugner in Florida. What, yeah, what's the story? That, that one is true. So that, that helps Chris's question out a little bit. Um, Bob had just finished with us in San Jose, and uh, in our coach's office, we had literally uh, an older photocopier and printer, um, that one of those ones, Mike, that really was a big, big, heavy machine, like an old one, not one that's sitting on a desktop. This was a full on four big wheels. And Bob just got the head coaching job in Florida and a moving company showed up at the rank with regards to moving his personal belongings to F- South Florida, believe it or not, from San Jose. That's a long drive. And then he would meet it in Florida with his wife. And um, I made sure that that photocopier was bubble wrapped and taken to Florida. <laughs> And to this day, he said when he had no idea when that pulled up to his house and that photocopier got rolled off that machine into his house, he was never so mad at me as he had ever been before. So he had to dispose of it, too, and that thing weighed a ton. So to this day, we still laugh about that. That was, that was a harmless one, but uh, at the end of the day, a good story, too. On the heels of that one, can we get the story of canceling the Memorial Cup? I'm not familiar. <laughs> yeah, that was, that's true. I was doing a radio show every Friday back in the day in Cambridge, and um, we had an April Fool's joke, and that's what it was. And the April Fool's joke was that a major sponsor had pulled out. We did not use MasterCard. I was not using MasterCard. And the, the story was that a major sponsor had pulled out. Um, and we had some pre-audio taped uh, interviews with TJ Easton, who was an overage at the time, and was devastated that he wasn't going to get to play in the Memorial Cup. So what had happened is we announced this on the radio show, and then people started to show up at the auditorium to get their tickets um, refunded. And I remember the producer of the radio show coming in with these pink slips saying, Steve Binkowski is on the line and he's telling you to end this now. <laughs> and so that was one of those ones that was it, it, it still to this day. It, it was a lot of fun. Uh, Pete DeBoer was a part of it. So I made sure that I had certain people involved. Um, but it was, it was great. Just some people that were not involved did not find it very funny when people started to show up at the odd for ticket refunds. Spotter, I was working at another radio station and people were calling me about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, 
that was a good one. And, and to this day, Steve and I laugh about that Biankowski because uh, we, we tricked him pretty good on that April Fool's. It's, uh, it's so Throw- great. Go ahead, Pober. Sorry, I just have one, one last one. I know we got to get going here, but um, just the last couple of years uh, have been the first years of Kitchener Rangers hockey without Don Cameron. You yeah. rode that bus quite a while with Cammie. Yeah. Uh, what, what was your relationship like with him? You know what? Again, I heard Mike talk about him and using the word pops. You know what? It's when your young coach is going through that, there, there are certain guys that had effects on your career were father figures or mentors. And that was Don, you know, he he was a mentor to, to all of us because of what he had seen, the players he had been involved with, the coaches that he had been involved with. And he was always a guy that you could have a beer with and, um, and get his opinion. And he never, ever, ever was overbearing. If you asked his opinion, he would give it to you. Um, but again, I, I, at the end of the day, you know, the media has a job to do, but, his heart was always in the Kitchener Ranger dressing room. That's where he belonged. Um, that's who he was rooting for. He was obviously a Hall of Fame broadcaster, um, but at the same time was a mentor, I think, to Pete and I when we were there because he was just that father figure that you can lean on when you're maybe looking for a different opinion and just a great, great man and obviously a tremendous loss to the community. You touch on something, Steve, that has always been something I've respected about you, and I'm not trying to blow smoke here, but your relationship, like you, you just mentioned that Don's job, he had a job to do with the media. The media has a job to do. You and I were on buses after bad games, after good games, but you have always seemed to, to strike that balance of understanding that the role that the media has and, and the role that you have as a head coach and a general manager. How do you walk that line even to this day? You know what, again, I think it, it comes with, you know, with experience, um, you know, again, watching back in the day how Pete handled the media um, and just understanding that it's very easy to stand up there after a 7-2 win in Kitchener, you know, but you, you still have to stand up there when you lose 7-2 in Kitchener and you have to answer the question. So, again, I, I think it's being honest. It's not sugarcoating things. Um, and, again, it's never putting your players in a bad light or a bad spot, but recognizing that there's people that pay money to come and watch your team play and, and hard-earned money and just making sure that they recognize this as a head coach and a general manager that you recognize that and you do everything that you could do in your power to make sure that the team put forth an effort every night. You're not going to win every night, but I don't think it's asking too much for your team to put forth an effort. So I always recognize that about the media and, uh, and obviously being around, you know, the likes of Peter DeBoer and Mike Johnson and, and guys that went on to be NHL head coaches. It's, it's just learning to see how they handled the media and then and trying to take cues from that. You mentioned having a job to do. I don't think uh, hopping on a Zoom call for a podcast is part of the assistant coach for the Vegas Golden Knights, but we appreciate it, Spotter. No, you know what, again, anything for you guys. It's, uh, uh, I think once you get to this level, you're very, very fortunate. And, um, but I can tell you guys both that we're always on the OHL website. We're always looking at Twitter and, and seeing what's going on with junior hockey because uh, it, do, it does hold uh, near and dear to our heart, hearts and we continue to follow it. Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.